Digital 410 Media proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Dennis Blocker. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we are back for 2024. we got the whole new gang back together. Joining us, as always, from the big-ass state in the Union, as we were discussing prior to going on the air, Mr. Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how you doing, sir? Great, great. I'm pumped about 2024, pumped about the new show tonight. And also joining us from the ranch. Actually, no, he left the ranch. Now he's at home, but formerly from the ranch. <laughs> formerly a guest of the show, multiple guests, but now a new host, Mr. Dennis Blocker. Dennis, how you doing, sir? Doing great. Doing really great. It's good to be with y'all. I like Super that shirt. Fun. I like that shirt. Yeah, check it out. Uh, just a little, a little state of the, the show for you guys. As you guys know, Henry uh, took some time off to work on his book. And as you would, as you would assume, that's a long process. And so um, we wish Henry well and uh, hope all things go well with his book. But even after his book gets released, which we have no date on that, but after his book does get released, there's tours and all that stuff. So he's going to be tied up for a very long time down the road. And so I'm sure he'll come back as a guest from time to time. But we're going to keep on trucking on as we've been doing for the last, holy hell, six years now? Yeah, 2018 is when the show launched. January 1st, actually January 7th of 2018, because that's what the logo stands for on Mr. Blocker shirt. Did you know that, Dennis? Look down on your shirt. That's the US-01 stands for January 7th, 2018. That's what that stands for. That was the date our very first episode aired. And now you are part of the family and the uh, history of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. That's pretty cool. So Jeff was telling me you guys have been busy. You got a little project you're working on. Yeah. Yeah, we've got uh, several things that we've been... uh, going over the last couple of weeks in uh, uh, pretty intense meetings, hashing out ideas. Uh, some of them are actually ideas we got from the Warriors, and uh, we're pretty excited about it. Jeff? Well, uh, we also got another project that Dennis is a huge part of that he just kind of invited me to, to help out. I was hoping, uh, Dennis, you'd talk a little bit about, uh, our boy, Arthur Allen Jr. And, uh, the potential of that project, the potential of, um, a guest to come on the show and the potential of just everybody. I mean, I don't know what it is. There must be something on TV, but everybody loves B-17s now all of a sudden. Yeah. Something in the air is just weird. I don't know. Something is in the air for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that uh, project is something that we were, um, I did a book with uh, Mitch Weiss, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and called The Heart of Hell about my grandfather's unit, uh, gunboat unit, uh, specifically LCI gunboat 449 in the Pacific. And uh, we, we, we got a, we worked really well together and, um, I learned a lot from that process about writing and, uh, he went in turn, took advantage of my research skills that I had been doing for so long. Well, uh, we were approached by the nephew of a B-17 pilot from the 94th bomb group, 332nd squadron. And, um, he asked if we would be willing to write about his uncle and, 
you know, of course you're like, well, there's so many stories out there. What, what, what makes one rise to the top above, you know, the literally almost unlimited numbers of stories that are out there. And uh, so we're just, you know, fingers crossed, hoping that there would be a story there. Well, you know, it turns out that, you know, the B-17 crew was, you know, tremendous. Like guys were writers writing home these great letters, um, the compelling. Even Walter Winchell mentions this bomber crew in one of his radio broadcasts. Um, they were a, a special group of guys and, um, we're looking forward to telling their story. And, you know, I, I, of course, reached out to Jeff with his experience with, uh, the air war, uh, specifically Europe and, uh, you know, to, to be able to have the resource, especially somebody that, you know, you care so much about and spend so much time with, you know, to be able to sit around and, and sit around a fire and which we've done, it's not just not just like a fanciful idea, but we've actually done it, sat around a fire and campfire outside and just uh, pad and paper and just hashing out stuff. And it's been, it's been really great. Um, you know, it, 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 it amazes me that even after all of the work that I've done and the research that I've done, it amazes me that there are still stories to be uncovered. I don't know why it amazes me because I know that, you know, there was, but there's still nuggets out there. And uh, I was just thinking the same thing. I'm like, isn't it amazing how there's still so many stories untold, but then this voice in the back of my head's like, Hey, stupid. You realize how many men served in this war across <laughs> the world? Clearly there's a lot of stories out there that are untold. But how lucky are you that in this day and age where sadly, and it, and it's so, it's, it's sad, it's weird, but it's not. And I, and I, I know it doesn't make any sense, but I'll, I'll make it make sense. Sadly, there's less veterans around, but as Jeff and I were talking before the show, it was only 80 years ago. And those cats were between the age of 18 and, and 17, so now they're going to be 97, 98, which then does make it more understandable to believe that there's not so many around. But the fact that I've often said the older I get, the younger old gets. And so yeah. when you're 16 and 17, you think, wow, 67-year-old guy, that guy's old. But when you're 45, you're thinking, this stuff happened 80 years ago, 83 years ago most people have grandparents that are still alive that are in their seventies and eighties. And that makes you realize how not so long this was ago. And then if you want to go deeper in that, you're thinking, well, that was 80 years ago. World war one was a few years before that, which would have been my, in my case, my great grandfather's era. And then if you keep going back civil war, revolutionary war, and then you, you kind of realize how young our country truly is. Right. It's like yeah. wow that our our country is founded six generations ago, like six grandfathers ago or seven grand. Right. You know, it it really it makes you realize how young we are and how not so long ago that was. But then once you had that eighteen on it, now they're ninety eight years old and they're less and fewer and fewer around. And so now we're at that point where we have to rely on the children. And the grandchildren carrying on those stories for those who aren't around anymore. And we have to rely on those 
people's wives, sisters, and cousins, hopefully at some point, as in the case of your grandfather, relatives taking all their letters and have stashed them somewhere and then someone finding them, not knowing they're there. Like, oh, I cleaned out grandma's or I cleaned out my mom's basement and found my grandfather's letters to my grandmother's and now here's all this new source material. And that source material is popping up all over the place, assuming, you know, people's grandparents' stuff was tucked away in a basement somewhere. Perfect example, we talk about my grandfather all the time. Every time I reach out to my mom, my aunt, hey, you got anything on my grandfather? Oh, it's in your Uncle David's basement. Okay, so I'll have to wait until Uncle David gets around to clean out his basement, I suppose. But And that's that's how a lot of this stuff gets unearthed. One day, someone finally does that spring cleaning, and oh, look what we found. Yeah. And then you got to find yeah. some enthusiastic person like you and Jeff to uh, bring it to life, put it in paper, and make it available to the world. Yeah, that's right. It's it's pretty exciting, really. Uh, when the World War II veterans were were still with us and alive, um, it, it it was still a challenge because your challenge was to get them to talk about it. Yeah, you know, the worst day of their life, in many cases. Um, but you know, I, I had a I had a really uh, different kind of a bearing about me that these guys just all opened up to me and just trusted me with their stories. Um, but what I think that even more interesting now is as far as like from a researcher point of view is the being very ingenious and the uh, different routes that I'm having now to get the story from specifically exactly what you said that now we're having to reach the family members, right? So you have to now, I have to convince family members that who have been bombarded by calls from India <laughs> every day and calls from the spammers and uh, you know all, all this scam that's going on i'm amazon someone bought an iphone for 900 dollars. you need to call me right <laughs> exactly exactly yeah your, your your sprint uh thing is is, is uh, expired if you don't respond within 24 hours you're going to be canceled you know mm -hmm. now here comes this guy from you know texas you know and i want to talk to you about your grandpa it's like okay <laughs> So you have to, it's, it's, it's intriguing because, and it's something that I love and because I get very ingenious on how I'm going to get, convince them to, um, you know, talk to me about it. And, um, I've been successful at that, but that's just, you know, trial and error and, and learning, uh, specifically, um, uh, if anybody out there is interested and, and has a story that they want to research, I mean, whitepages.com will give you people's phone numbers and it will give you their email which really blew my mind but uh and it's been successful that's how we've got these guys from this book that we're working on now let me ask um, you a question then, from a research standpoint i just had this thought yeah as we get older and 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 as living historians and reenactors you're kind of seeing it now at least here in florida i'm seeing more young cats who are reenacting vietnam and and what tends to happen as as the grandchildren get to that age, they oftentimes want to reenact the the scenarios in which their grandfathers or their fathers fought in. Obviously, you guys are researching World War II, some point maybe some Korean stuff, but all the writing home, all the communication was done handwritten letters, probably all cursive, right? Yeah, for majority of it. Yep. Jeff, when you were overseas, and, and Dennis, when you guys did correspondence, you guys all hand-wrote your letters, correct? Yep. All in cursive. 
Yes, absolutely. Jeff, no? Yeah, Jeff, I, you, I know we were wrong. Jeff this. was yeah, doing black letters, <laughs> double spaced, yeah. triple margins with the I, blue line through the middle. Uh, yeah, I just I write in, in all capitals, much to the chagrin of all of my students that they tell me that I write like I'm yelling at them. <laughs> Why do you write in caps lock? <laughs> like, well, there's a reason. <laughs> well, Dennis sees where I'm going. They, they're not teaching cursive nowadays. So 30 years well, from now. That doesn't even matter because who's writing a letter? Nobody. But when the next, next group of amateur historians, the, nef the next Dennis Blocker, the next Jeff Copsetta, right. the they next Jared Frederick, who's going through someone's going through your generation's letter, writing back from, you know, Iraqi freedom, Operation Desert Storm, all those conflicts, and they're cursive. They're going to have to, well, I got to take this home and scan this into my computer with some software that recognizes cursive writing because I can't read this in real time because I never learned cursive writing and and just, I don't know, I just don't know if that would take a, kind of the personalization out of the research or if or it's just something they're going to be used to. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I mean, yeah, Dennis, you probably could answer that better, but I just throwing this out there. Like, I think that kind of stuff happens all the time when you come across acronyms for different things or just this, the, um, the vernacular of the day a lot of times needs to be translated. Uh, I don't think that's anything new for research. You go, whoa, wait a minute. I've never come across that, you know, the way he described that or whatever, because, yeah, I mean, there's military, you know, just just the 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 verbiage is different, um, just like it was. I mean, I don't think that somebody at the turn of the century could look at a letter from a Civil War soldier and go, what does that even mean? And then probably just, you know, shortening the word regiment, for example. But if you don't know you know, the chain of command in the military, I think civilian researchers still have that a little bit of a block there. I, know, I, what I, do you get, think, Dennis? I get that, but I guess maybe what my point is, is I'm assuming, and I don't know, cause I, I've never had the privilege or the benefit, but I'm assuming that when Dennis is sitting down reading a letter that's handwritten, you, there's a little personal feel to it. Cause you're reading this you're, perfect example. Back in the day when CDs came out, You'd go to the music store, you'd buy the CD, you would open up the catalog, and sometimes the lyrics were typed out, and sometimes the lyrics was a photocopy of Kurt Cobain's handwriting or Trent Reznor's cursive handwriting. And it, to me, it felt more personalized. It felt cooler, like, oh, I'm getting, I'm reading it straight from his hands, his mind, because you're reading a copy of his cursive writing opposed to some intern typed it out at the, the CD company. I'm just wondering when it comes to research, do you feel more personable when you're reading someone's handwritten letter versus a transcript of said letter? And will that be lost by a generation of researchers who may not be able to read the, 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 the actual personal handwritten letter until it's been transcribed into a text that they know how to read, I guess is kind of my point. There's a, a, a the UDT frogman on the LCI gunboat 449, uh, Lee Yates, he was an uh, observer on, from Team 14 on my grandpa's gunboat for the EWO mission. He was killed in action. His, uh, his stepdaughter, um, she sent me all of his wartime letters. It's about almost 200 of them. And they're all the originals. And you cannot help 
as a historian, you cannot help but know that the, this paper traveled with him all over his journey. And it was in his hand. It was in his hand. And that pencil, that lead, left the pencil because he specifically pressed down with a pencil against that very paper I'm holding in my hand. And that transfer from his brain through the pencil to the paper, all of that mechanism is right there and I'm holding it. And, and to your point, Don, that letter is very powerful to me and I can transcribe them. My nephew for this past Christmas couldn't read his Christmas card because I wrote it to him in cursive and he's 22 years old. And I think that's what you're, you were gleaning that more earlier is that these letters, these simple letters that I have from um, Lieutenant Yates, Seth would not, if he was a historian, he would not be able to read 200 letters quickly. It's going to be something where he's going to have to hire somebody, an expert. Or scan or, into a computer. Or scan them into a computer and hope that this, that this software is picking up on all the different uh, intricacies of the different way that people form the letter F or the people form an H or the everybody has their own little things that you learn. And to that point, when you're reading through letters, you can read it in real time. You're, okay, this is kind of cool, but it's really not going to fit not my really. narrative. I'm going to put it aside. Now you got to take it all home, scan it, take that time, read it before you, oh, this is nothing. And so I'm yeah, sure it's going to it's going to make the whole procedure take yeah three times longer. And what if, and exactly and what if you're a historian on a budget and you have to hire an expert and he's you've got 200 letters. Well, you don't know which ones have all the the good key stuff that you want. Maybe you can decipher by date. That might help you a little bit and narrow it down by you know that well I'm looking for a time period between March. One specifically in regard to the book that I'm working on now, I'm really looking for letters that would be from uh, March 1943 to July 1943. So, you know, in that regard, I would be able to cut down 200 letters into maybe, you know, 50. But then if you're on a budget, you've got to hire an expert, right? Time's and money. That's it. Another cool money. thing about what you were saying about having that letters in your hand, it's it's one thing to think this paper was there, this paper's now in my hands. But if you're a history nerd like we are, a military history nerd, not only did he write that, not only did he press that, but he put it in an envelope, handed it to the guy who's collecting the mail, and then it got put on a ship or a plane. And just the fact that not only did he write that, but just the logistical machine that it took to get from point A to point B and all that happened during that history that you love so much. Wow, this thing possibly flew on this particular plane, or maybe this traveled here via Liberty ship, and then got processed here, and then went there. And the whole mechanism of it, if you're truly into it, that's that in and of itself, you know. How many goofy little things do we, oh, I got a postcard that somebody got, that, or I got a uh, poster that hung in somebody's, drugstore and then put an envelope that I bought off of eBay 10 years versus this actually got sent to so-and-so and it went through the whole system. I mean, if I'm that happy to have a poster from somebody I didn't know that hung in a drugstore, how cool is it to have those letters that actually went through that whole mechanism? So just depending yeah, exactly. on who you are and what you're into, the value just changes. 
Yeah, that's that's such a good. That is so cool. And and you could even write a short story about that. You could write a short story about a really interesting short story about the journey of a piece of mail. You could say, okay, who, who was From responsible? The of the letter. What was the chain of command? Who? I mean, we've all seen movies about the Airborne. We've all seen movies about First Infantry. We've all seen movies about the Navy and Air Corps. Don't see a whole lot of. I haven't seen too many documentaries on the mail carriers, the people who got the letters home, who was responsible for making sure V mail got sent and the microfilm, the whole thing. That may turn it in itself into a, a cool book or a cool yeah. documentary. There's a group of Absolutely. people that were valuable to the war effort who maybe never fought, shot around, but they got that. You guys know nothing affects morale more than a letter from home or knowing yeah. that your letter got home and how important those guys who made sure that that happened all the way across. I'd, sk I'd skip a meal to get a letter. Mm. Every time. I'd skip a meal to get a letter from home when I was over there. Absolutely. But I think what you're talking about is not is nothing new. I mean, yeah. uh, there's always had to be some type of translation or an expert brought in that you know who could read Latin. You know, I think about the Rosetta Stone. You know, I I don't think that that's anything that historians haven't already had that challenge for thousands of years since we've kept written record, right? I mean, yeah. since the Phoenicians, there's been dialects and translations and improper translations yeah, right. cursive is just going to enter into that realm you know you make a great point um it shouldn't it's not like it's a whole separate language that's never been spoken again but um I, I don't think it's anything new you know for historians to deal with a a barrier of some sort you know i think about the bible how many times it's the bible is it's translated so, but it's just I agree, but it's just so annoying that it's an obstacle that we put on future oh. historians that doesn't have to be there. But to that point, Absolutely. let me ask you, a lot of those language languages took hundreds, if not thousands of years to die out. Cursive died out in what, eight and a half? <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty quick, pretty quick deletion on that key. I mean, yeah, Sanskrit, uh, Latin, some of that stuff, five, six, seven hundred years. <laughs> Don, cursive mm. nice this is uh these are the letters from wow. uh there's hundreds here or at least at least a couple hundred um just randomly picking one up and you're located uh, dead you, where in texas are you you're like in the middle of the state right you're near jeff I'm in uh, San Antonio. Okay, perfect. So you're nowhere near the coast. You ain't got to worry about hurricanes and flooding, <laughs> losing all that stuff. That's what I'm worried about. It's like, okay, you're you're in the middle of landlocked state. It's safe. <laughs> right, exactly. Because, I mean, I live in yeah. a town where, you know, my father lost everything he owned. S sad story. Sad story. I kicked myself in the ass. I should have stole it when I had the chance. Never did because I respect my father. But in high school, you know how every once in a while you go looking through your parents' crap. I saw in my dad's jewelry box back in high school, he had his father's Navy dog tags, the round ones, just like our Marine Corps said Donald Preston Abernathy on it, which is my name. I would be a third except for my dad didn't have the same name. He had that thing, and then after Hurricane Ian came and flooded and put four feet of water in his house, he found the jewelry box. Dog tag was gone. If oh I would have stole that damn thing back in 1997 when I found it, 
or in 2005 when I reaffirmed it was what I thought it was, it would be safe here. But because he had it in a flood zone, got wasted away in Hurricane Ian, history lost, along with his guitars, all his he had road pianos because he plays in a band, all, mixing boards, all, everything lost. And so nowadays when I think of historical stuff, I'm like, hmm. When you show me that box, I'm like, God, I hope you don't live on the coast. No, I don't. I, uh, I live. And, and another thing, too, is I, I am mindful of even water leaks. Like things aren't never on the floor. They're in totes um, that are covered. I just uh, super, super scared about. <laughs> Crazy as it sounds. Um, not during Ian. Well, Ian, everything's already consolidated in this room. But during Irma. Um, a few years before that, when they were talking about potential flood, my, my dad and my stepmom were here. I took all my valuable stuff in case we had to get on the roof and put it in this room and my M1 Garand, none of my reproduction shit, but uh, some of my true to life historical stuff, I picked and chose a few things that if we had to get on the roof, I felt it had historical enough value that it was going on the roof with us. I had it all here consolidated in one little spot because, uh, you know, we've been through five hurricanes now. But, you know, it's that's one of the things that some people don't put into consideration. Go ahead, Jeff. I just, I just have a thought. Mm-hmm. Send all don't my stuff to you guys. <laughs> you got room. Throw, throwing that out there. Well, you know, <laughs> what, sadly I had to go back to Ohio because a friend of mine I, I went to high school with passed away at 42. And it was right after the hurricane, and I was – back here talking to somebody and someone mentioned it's like well you know i've lived in ohio my whole life never had a tornado what are you what are you living in florida for and i just said hey man there's a cost of living in a free state <laughs> i just <laughs> left it at that because i remember seeing all the news stories about ohio during the pandemic and how everything was i was like there's a there's a price to live in a free state and i just left it at that <laughs> so yeah. real quick because i know people are wanting to know masters of the air we know Jeff hasn't seen it. Dennis, have you seen any of it? I have. I saw the two episodes. I have not. And here's why. I've mentioned this in the in the past, not with Masters of the Air, but just I personally, well, I, I don't have Apple. I can get it again. I'll just do what I always do, just get the trial, binge watch things, and then get rid of it. But I kind of made the conscious decision, especially after seeing everything being inundated with Master of the Air stuff. I'm going to let it die down a little bit and pass because I mentioned this before. If you don't buy into all the hype and get caught up in all the hype, you're less likely to be let down. And since I haven't seen any, I'm not saying I will be let down, but I figure if I just kind of let it die down, get rid of my anticipation, and then I can go into it with a calm heartbeat and clear mind and just enjoy it for what it is and not saying, oh, here's the new one, here's the new one, let's go. I've been waiting five years for this, waiting ten years for this. We've been talking about it on the podcast every other episode for last year and a half and then possibly be let down by it. So I'm just going to kind of chill out, let everybody do their thing, and go watch it with a steady heartbeat and a clear mind and maybe binge watch all of them once they're out and available to that point without giving away spoilers or anything like that to our audience. You've seen the first two episodes you said, 
Yeah. What is your an, initial give away, give away on what you've seen so far? It's it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. And I think that um, as historians and uh, folks who love the subject, but also as folks that are mature and have life experience, that we know that they have to take some license with things because to move the story along when they have to combine characters into one and they have to um, combine events sometimes to move the story along faster because they've only got, you know, eight, 10 episodes, whatever it's going to be. So, you know, you just have to be mature enough to realize that it's not going to be, um, you know, exactly accurate, this and that. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed watching it. And um, yeah, it's, there's some, there's some shots in there that, that will, I'll just, that, just from cinematography point of view, there's some there's some scenes in there that will live with me like my whole life that were just absolutely beautiful. Since you've seen it, I, I, I've gone through this review and I've edited out anything that would be considered spoiler alerts. I don't know if this gentleman got early access to the entire series or if he's just basing this review off the two episodes he's seen. This is from a website, cbc.ca. It's a Canadian news entertainment site. The gentleman's name is Jackson Weaver. I'm just going to read this modified version of his review and let me know if you think he's way off base, he's kind of got some points, and just as your as our resident person who's seen those two episodes where Jeff and I haven't, um, I just want to throw this out there and let me know where you think. Um, it's kind of long, but it's kind of, I, once again, I, I, I did edit it down. So this is by Jackson Weaver, CBC News. Band of Brothers, the HBO war miniseries about the American paratroopers produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, began with a short narrative, Hammer to the Skull. Quote, we came from a small town, a small, small town, says a combat veteran, immediately off the top of the first episode. All three fellows in that town were deemed unfit for duty, committed suicide because they couldn't go. Nine years later, the next entry, the United States Marine entered the Pacific, only took a few extra seconds to get the similar point. Quote, we had no idea what we were in for at all of this, a retired Marine said, over images of ships burning in Pearl Harbor and FDRs, quote, a day they'll live in infamy speech. The, the main thing was we were all alive. But Masters of the Air, the producing partner's third and latest installment, takes a significantly different route. Rather than launching with footage of soldiers, battles, or history, the series starts off with two guys, Buck and Bucky, leaning on an elbow at the bar, riffing over the similarities between their nicknames. Now, to be fair, framing Masters of the Air as a flimpet, as flimpet with, a, with its subject matter um, through a young Air Force struggling through some of the darkest days of World War II would be disingenuous. The opening scene purpose is to starkly contrast between the pilot's experience on the ground with their screaming descents through machine gun fire in sub-zero temperatures more than 6,000 meters to the air. As a, scene, as a scene showing just that pops up moments later, any impartial watcher would say Masters of the Air treats its source material with respect, based on the book of the same name by Donald L. Miller. The series obviously committed to truthfully telling the story of its fighters, such as the 100th Bomb Group members, 
Like the book, the show pairs personal stories with terrifying realities of air combat never seen before or since. It's more than understandable that the series, filmed now nearly a century after its subject took place, no longer includes first-hand testimonies as its predecessors did. But without them, Masters of the Air takes a completely tonal shift. Where Band of Brothers commentary and the Pacific's tactical maps and missions outlines bookend each episode help track a certain sense of similarity and awe, Masters of the Air has given over completely to just another story using historical context for entertainment. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's a significant downgrade and especially disappointing if your standards were set so high by the last two miniseries. Watching Band of Brothers Easy Company slowly build a fighting force and to get to Europe, then to see it picked apart as real members recollect what it was like to be there it was almost like a service journalism. It was an eye-opening peek into history you could play in history class. Masters of the Air's less impressive, less impressive story, for the most part, made a disjointed antidote from the book, patched together without a unifying theme. feels like something you would watch while making dinner. It's a shame for the fact that it's a compelling story to be told, committed, but overzealous... Com I'm sorry... It's a shame for the fact that it's a compelling story to be told. Committed but overzealous commanders were arguably forced by circumstances to sacrifice airmen in order to provide Air Force uh, could prove that the Air Force could and must be used to win the war. There was also a refusal of the planners to accept the necessity for fighter planes alongside heavy bombers and the threat of the Army Air Force being absorbed and disappeared into the untested techniques that didn't show results. F some of the scathing, um, some of this is scattered throughout Masters of the Air, but without a clear focus of one or the other series. Instead, Butler Cleavers uh, delivers wooden lines, which still hold on to the accent that seemingly seeped into his pores from his 2022 portrayal of Elvis. Meanwhile, he bounces between impressive but samey sky battles and the real life accounts of a hand melted into guns and a husky named Meatball, which was kidnapped from Iceland. It's a faithfully told, but feels more like shallow characters on a narrative rail, more, more guiding us to a clip shown of archival footage rather than building a central message. Part of this is due to the performances, which are nothing to write home about, aside from perhaps the miniseries mainstay, Anthony Boyle, as Lieutenant Harry Crosby. Part of this is also the writing, where Band of Brothers gives us a morally dubious Captain Sobel. Seemingly, every character in Master of the Air's initial episode is a one-dimensional delivered system for simple, unchallenged act of heroism. Even in the initial conflict felt by the airmen command commanders to drop thousands of bombs over overpopulated cities, which mil or painstakingly documents, is, if anything, an afterthought here. But even with all that, Masters of Air does, doesn't fall below much, or even most, entertainment built around the Second World War. It seems like it was made for history buffs of the era. The kind of thing that, with a, sh I'm sorry, a kind of thing that those with a shelf crammed full of books about the era, a travel history guide of memorials, to do it, 
to do it and a deep affinity for Oppenheimer should probably love. Master of the Air has all the ingredients of success. Still, there's something dead behind the eyes. If you didn't expect much, there's not much to complain about, but it's not what it could have been. Is that harsh or is that seem like maybe a little on point uh it sounds like um it sounds like he did see probably the uh, whole series um it's interesting because i mean i could see some of his points for sure but as in anything you'll you'll get you know five people will watch it and they'll have five different viewpoints on you know what what they saw about it it is interesting though that he he he, he comes at it almost as if um, it's it's not the same you can't you can't look at band of brothers when that first came out at the same light as masters of the air because we by this point we've already seen band of brothers we've already seen the pacific we've seen these blockbuster uh, series and 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 we've we've become numb to um, the excellence and how 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 staggering Band of Brothers was when it when it when it emerged onto the scene because it was so so different and it was something that just immersed everybody. So I think some of that is 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 what also Masters of the Air suffers from is that that constant bombarding of Marvel movies and, and Star Wars movies and just this constant uh, always pushing, pushing, pushing more and more of this, this uh, spectacle on us. And then you get something like, I mean, there, there's moments in this, in the, the first two episodes, there, there are moments that I, Don, I, like, it, it was very powerful for me, especially because of the book I'm writing now with Mitch. But there's a particular scene when they're on a mission that, man, I got sick to my stomach. And it was just hard hitting and I hadn't thought of it in that way before what was what was happening before my eyes and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be sitting with me for a long long time so for you know for him I, I don't know I, I don't really appreciate that I, I expect I know he's got his viewpoint uh, it, it sounds like he's a little bit jealous not to be an American <laughs> but true. Well, well, to that end, and I'm sure Jeff's thinking the same thing, and we've talked about this multiple times when Henry was on the show, the Pacific, when it first came out, it got panned a lot. People people making the mistake of that same comparison, trying to compare the Pacific to the Band of Brothers. And when it first came out, a lot of people dogged on it. But as time went by and people revisited it, even Henry himself went back and revisited it and looked at it for what it is and not making that comparison – the Pacific has grown in popularity and people are starting to hold it to a higher, higher level versus to where they did when it first came out. But kind of to his point though, it'd be interesting. Maybe we should do this after the entire series has been out for a while. We should find somebody or force somebody in our life who isn't in the world war two, make them sit down and watch the whole series. Because as he said, the three of us are exactly that we're guys that have books shoved on our, on our bookshelf. And, According to him, this source material is made for guys like us. So it may be an interesting experiment to bring someone on the show six, four months now or six weeks from now after the show was ran and been out for a while. We force somebody who's not into this topic to sit down and watch it and see maybe what their 
takeaway is. That's a really great idea. I love that idea. But but I think we could all probably agree, and kind of like I went into this saying, I'm waiting a little bit to let the hellabaloo die down so I can watch it with fresh eyes because I don't want to fall in this guy's trap, which is comparing it to its predecessors. Because, right. And he did point out, obviously, yes, we all love the fact that Band of Brothers had the veterans in it, Pacific had the veterans in it, but the veterans aren't around now. And the ones yeah. who are, a lot of them aren't sharp enough to, to do that interview. And so, obviously, you got to take that out of the fact. Um, I was a little surprised for him to kind of dog on some of the actors. So that may just be what critics do. Critics criticize. So it'll be interesting. I, yeah, I, I kind of like the idea of maybe we find somebody to come on the show who yeah, isn't gung-ho really about this stuff and just say, hey, what did you think about this as a series and as a TV series? And go from there. Yeah. Thoughts, yeah, Jeff? Cool. Uh, man. <laughs> well, I... Uh, it was interesting to hear what that guy had to say. And, and I guess mainly because... And you guys know, I've been very cautiously optimistic about this one. And I've said that from the beginning... Uh, the, the hype behind it, I'm a lot like Don. It, you know, it's great that my my Instagram is is blowing up with everybody with the new Masters of the Air everything, and you know the Toby mugs and all the other nonsense of stuff that. That's why I shared the post I did. Like, hey, I was Aircore before Aircore was cool, man. Like, everybody wanted to be a paratrooper. I'm still living and breathing B-17s, and I always have my whole life, and I always will. But with that said, my fear for this series is, and and I know we need to stop comparing it to the others to the other two, right? We we do. It's just because it's the same people that made it doesn't doesn't make it that it's a part of a trilogy. It, it's I don't think that's how they designed it, right? This is a separate deal. Um, so I think it's unfair to, to compare them, but I will say this, if I stick band of brothers in, as soon as that music comes on, my wife's in a trance. Mm -hmm. Yep. For 20 years, when she hears that music and same with me, it's like we're transported. Absolutely. And my wife would have never watched that without me. Right. I mean, and now she's a huge World War II buff. She loves reading about the home front. She's just enthralled with the Holocaust. But is is some other, you know, guys like us, right? Let's say there's some there's some living history reenactor out there that he also loves B seventeens. He and he wants to sit down with his girlfriend. Is this series gonna capture her imagination to go, Wow, I can't believe these guys did this? I that's what I'm afraid won't happen because yeah, the same guys that are like us, we're always going to do what we do and keep it alive and, and dress up and honor these guys. But are we going to gain, is there going to be a bandwagon of brothers? You know, it's at, funny you for, brought that up. Cause year. I was, we've talked about this so many times. Like we never understood because we weren't, I wasn't living historian when band of brothers came out. But now we're kind of in that old man living historian seat. Do we kind of feel the same way about this now? Because we're seeing Facebook and Instagram and everything blow up. Or are we going to stay honest to ourselves and what we used to say about when people called it Bandwagon Brothers? Say, hey, 
as long as this miniseries gets people interested in the subject at hand, then do your thing. Let it blow up. Absolutely. But my fear is, will it? Yeah. Will it? Because that's what I want. I want for those guys that were really, truly the first heroes in my life, the, the guys that flew B-17s, is it going to catch on? And for the next 20 years, are we still going to be talking about it? I mean, I will say this. I've just, for funny ha-has, I've been looking. It's really hard to buy a brown leather jacket right now. <laughs> Not that I need one. I have several. But you want a reproduction A2? Forget it. Even a cheap knockoff from Yang Shui, China, you know, where they advertise, oh, this is just like what Steve McQueen wore in the great, you know, off the shelves, not available. So I like that, right? I want to see that. I was Um, was going to say the question will be, will Spike TV be playing Masters on the air on Veterans Day in the future? But Spike TV won't be around in the future because TV is going to be gone. We're all going to be streaming. But, But for the longest time, Spike TV would play Band of Brothers. Back to back on Veterans Day, because yeah. that, that yeah. became the thing. But now I, I, I think we can all say, what's the Scuttlebutt podcast suggest to our audience? If you haven't watched a show or you want to watch a show, go in the clear mind. Do your best not to compare it to its predecessors, and just go in watching this as an independent standalone vehicle. And let the cards lay where they are. And then ask yourself, hey, I was a little disappointed or I thought it was great. If you were a little disappointed, ask yourself, how did you feel about the Pacific when you first saw it? When I first saw the Pacific, I loved it because I read his book before the show came out. Um, I read his book and that I still remember this day. Carrie and I went to Books A Million and we got the, um, the the book version of the PBS documentary, The War. And I was reading that and then they had the Sid Phillips excerpt of Eugene Sledge's every time I go to say Eugene Sledge and I always instinctively want to say Henry Sledge Eugene Sledge's excerpt in that book and when I read that I went on to eBay and I got a 1983 paperback copy of with the old breed and I read that and I went and told Carrie I'm like hey if Steven Spielberg and them do another band of brothers it's gotta be on this guy and like six and a half months later they announced hey we're going to do the Pacific I was like sweet and so I read the book again before the show came out so when the show came out I was already gung-ho for it because I love the book so much um and I'm sure Jeff you're the same way because Air Corps is your thing that's your your thing and you've read the you've read the source material and so now you're you're waiting for the book to come out but I mean, not the book, but the, you're waiting to watch the series in its entirety. But I think it'll probably do everybody a service to watch it as an independent vehicle and try not to compare it to the others. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I mean, the Pacific, I, again, probably did what I shouldn't have done, was expecting Band of Brothers 2.0, Band of Brothers in the other part of the world, and growing up more interested in the island hopping campaigns and the um, just the aviation perspective of the Pacific War. I I read Hugh Ambrose's The Pacific. Mm-hmm. I read that before I knew there was going to be a miniseries out. And when I had heard it came out or it was coming out, I was pumped because The Pacific, the book also covered a uh, an SPD Dauntless pilot that was at Midway. 
his character was eliminated for the miniseries <sighs> for just, and he was like my favorite one, right? Not yeah. to take away from the others, but he was my favorite because it was just it was an, an incredible story. But it was eliminated because, and I get it. There's too much. You had four. You had four Marines and a Navy pilot. Something's got to give. So you know, it made sense. The odd man out was eliminated for sake of just easy storytelling and the fact that guys, you know, their paths kind of cross with you know Lecky and Sid and, and Eugene. So it, it made sense that these mem- war memoirs. And these guys actually, you know, serving together, it helped create that bond that we had in Band of Brothers because it was easy company. Um, Not to mention the but, fact that and, the and budget. I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed the book that they used for Basalone to tell Basalone's story. And Don, I know you, uh, you read, it, and I, I enjoyed that. But yeah, I, I again, I think I'm still going to remain cautiously optimistic. And again, as an Elvis fan, Austin Butler did so good of a job as Elvis. Well, see, that's what I thought was crazy about this guy's review because when I read him saying that the accent from the Elvis was coming through, like three days ago, I, I saw an article talking about how he had a speech coach whose job it was to get rid of that accent. So it's like, right. did it not work, or is this guy just looking for shit to pick at? So you never know. I saw the trailer and I heard it. Okay. So I've never yeah, seen the oh, Elvis yeah. movie, so I, I I have no comparison to base that off of. Yeah, absolutely. switch up gears a little bit. Um, still aviation, but news. Have you guys heard that they think they finally found Amelia Earhart's airplane? No, just came out Saturday. It's on NPR. Amelia Earhart's long lost plane possibly spotted in the Pacific by an exploration team. New clues have emerged in what is one of the greatest mysteries of all time, the disappearance of the legendary American aviator Amelia Earhart. Deep Sea Vision, an ocean exploration company based out of South Carolina, announced Saturday that it captured compelling sonar images of what could be uh, Earhart's aircraft at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Now, for those of you playing at home who's ever been on a bass boat with the new Garmin side scan technology or you watch uh, Ventures with Purposes, you know how detailed this stuff can get now. Uh, let's see here. The discovery was made possible by a high-tech unmanned underwater drone and a 16-member crew which surveyed more than 5,200 square miles of the ocean floor between September and December. The, t- the team spotted the plane-shaped object between Australia and Hawaii about 100 miles off Howland Island, which is where Earhart and her navigator Fred Noonan were supposed to have refueled but never arrived. The shape of the object and the sonar emerged closely resembled Earhart's aircraft, a Lockheed Electra, both in size and tail. Uh, Deep Sea Vision founder Tony Romeo said he was optimistic that and what they had found quote all that combined you'd be hard pressed to convince me that this is not an airplane and not amelia's plane he said the deep sea vision team plans to investigate the area where the images were taken sometime later this year romeo added Earhart newman's noonan vanished on 1937 while on a quest to circumnavigate the globe the trip would have made Earhart the first female to pilot around the world Nearly a century later, neither their bodies nor their airplanes have definitely been, uh, I'm sorry, definitely been recovered, becoming one of the greatest mysteries of all time and gathering countless theories as to what may have happened. Romero, a pilot and former U.S. Air Force intelligence officer, 
sold his real estate company's asset in 2022 to start the ocean exploration business and in large part joined a long line of ocean detectives hoping to answer hoping to find the answer of Earhart's disappearance. His team has captured the sonar image um, a month into their expedition, but did not realize what they had discovered until the last day of their trip. Quote, it was really a surreal moment, he said. Uh, The prospect of Earhart's plane lodged in the ocean floor backed up the popular theory that the aircraft ran out of fuel and sank in the water but others had suggested that she and Noonan landed on the island and starved to death. Some believe the two crashed and were taken by Japanese forces who were expanding their presence in the region leading up to World War II. Quote, I like everything and everybody's contributed to the story. I think it's great and it adds to the legacy of Amelia Earhart, Romero said, but in the end, I think it's important that she is already, I'm sorry, important is that she was a really good pilot. And so they're basically saying from other stories I've read that as far as they can tell from the imaging that this looks like it's going to be her plane, that model plane, and that there was no other model of that particular airplane in the South Pacific. So the fact that there would hypothetically be another Lockheed Electra in that area is slim to none. So if they can confirm the fact that, that this is a Lockheed Electra. Because we've all heard the stories like, you know, there's people, you know, POWs from World War II claimed that they seen her in a Japanese concentration camp on island before. And so we've all heard many of the theories, but it would be interesting to see if this was in fact her plane, then they can kind of figure, okay, did they have a life raft? If so, current or if her manifest shows there was no, I'm sure if you're flying over the ocean, you're going to have a life raft in there, right? So it'd be interesting to see. Wow. That would be, That'd be one of the stories of the century. They're saying he, he they, it cost him like $4 million in labor fuel to cover that area. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically one of those passion projects, man. No no expense spared. Jeff, you said you had something about what you're reading you want to get into. So let's go ahead and get into it. What you reading, fella? Yeah, well, I'm going to spare the readers on what I'm having to read. <laughs> for my colonial New England class. <laughs> Although, if there's any like early U.S. history buffs out there, 1600 to 1760s, Woo-hoo. I got some recommendations. But <laughs> for our World War II audience, uh, Dennis knew about this probably before I did, as this was a uh, surprise from my wife for Christmas. Um, I can't believe I hadn't heard of this before. But, I mean, I haven't. I, I hadn't heard of this book series I'm really excited, uh, especially for Don to read volume one uh, of it's called The Things Our Fathers Saw. So right now there are uh, it came with nine volumes and it's done by a history teacher, Matthew Roselle. And he started interviewing or started even having his students interview World War Two vets for a good part of his teaching career and he has now compiled them organized them and each book is about a different topic so i read uh volume one in like 10 days right after christmas and that one's called uh, voices of the pacific theater nice so i like i said i know don you'd really be interested in that when it, they're, did... they're quick 
when did their project start? You said he had his students start doing this throughout his career. Did they start like 1983 or 1995, 2001? When did this project start? That's that's a great question. I I want to say it was probably more in the 90s. Okay. Um, and he talks about being a big World War II buff. And like me, he's a teacher at his alma mater, or like he says, he's on the other side of the desk now. <laughs> Um, so he remembered that he had some teachers as a, as a, you know, high school student in the, in the seventies that were world war two vets that he didn't really realize or care when he was a high school student. But of course, now that he's a teacher, um, you know, kind of that full circle thing. So yeah, it's, it seems like probably around the nineties and I, and I think the first book was published in 2015. So the guy's been knocking them out. I mean, he's done more than one a year. Um, so, like I said, each one is kind of themed differently. Volume one is the Pacific. Uh, two and three is War in the Air. And then you've got um, Up the Bloody Boot, The War in Italy, D-Day and Beyond, The Bulge and Beyond, Across the Rhine, On to Tokyo. And then volume nine is uh, Homefront, Women at War. And then as an added bonus and of course, my wife really especially uh, appreciated this. It also came with a train near Magdeburg, which was a teacher's journey into the Holocaust and the reuniting of the survivors and liberators 70 years on. So this was a a bonus volume. So if you order the whole set, you get 10 books. And I just I, I have to say this because he he's from upstate New York. And a lot of the veterans that he interviewed were, of course, from that area. And it literally, uh, in 1943, uh, a magazine literally said that uh, this place in New York uh, was considered hometown USA. It was, And when you read from these veterans' perspectives, it is the absolute quintessential little town in upstate New York in the 1930s with kids at the sandlot and the, and the trains are going by. And I mean, it is just so America, this little town in upstate New York around the falls. Um, so the guy's absolutely brilliant because it's the veterans that tell their stories. He kind of introduces the chapter. He introduces the veteran and a little bit about the circumstance maybe, but for the most part, he's just peppered in here. This guy didn't like sit down and write all of these novels. He just organized them. He's and he, filling and he's in a great, the gap. Yeah, he's filling the gap, and he's a great writer. And and the um, the part that is the veteran speaking, some of the times is transcribed from an interview with a student, and he tells you that. And and sometimes you know, there's um, one of the. Uh, Iwo Jima veterans literally tells this kid, look, I hope you'll never have to tell a story like this when you get to be 87. I hope you'll yeah. never have to do that. And now, does, uh, he give, really... does he give each student their, their fair credit in the book saying, Hey, this part of the interview was conducted by Stephen Smith. Uh, not that I've seen in, in volume one, although he does call out a specific student who uh, finished the project that he gave her that he thought was an impossible task, and it's it's really interesting. And and I, I'm so tempted. I want to read the whole thing, to you guys, and I I won't. It's it's a couple pages long, but it's the epilogue of of the first book, 
And it's about a local veteran, Randy, who was killed on the Oklahoma at the during the attack at Pearl. And they had never really they never really found, you know, found him to bring him home. And uh, it there was a student who comes up to to Mr. Rizel and asked uh, to get some of her uh, classwork a little early because she's going to Hawaii for spring break. And he's. You know, he, he says something um, like my blood pressure ticks a little bit slightly because with exams pending the day before our Easter break, my 10th grade history student informs me that she's leaving for a vacation. And since she'll be missing a few classes and she's heading to Hawaii and I'm not, I give her an extra task, never dreaming that she would actually pull it off. Go to Pearl and <laughs> he asks her to find Randy Holmes to find out about him and and he goes back and finds the 1941 yearbook, finds the picture of Randy and his Navy whites. And, you know, everybody is so, um, you know, proud of him that he's uh, um, transferring to Great Lakes Training School in Chicago. And then that he's going to report for duty on the USS Oklahoma in August of 41. Um, what I didn't know was that the salvage efforts for the Oklahoma didn't start till I think March of 43. Wow. Well, it kind of makes sense so, because all their, you know, all their, they needed to use all their manpower elsewhere. Absolutely. But to think about what they pulled out of that ship yeah. 18 months later, you're not going to be able to identify Don't much. Don't think about it. Yeah, um, and then I also didn't realize that in 1947, um, the Oklahoma was sold and began its last journey to be cut up for scrap at a salvage yard in California, but not long into the journey, she began to take on water, and the tow lines had to be severed. The Oki slipped away into the abyss 540 miles northeast of Pearl Harbor. A former crew member summed up the feelings of many who had served aboard and those who perished on her when he wrote these lines. Good for you, Oklahoma. Go down at sea in deep water as you should under the stars. No razor blades for you. They can make them from the ships and planes that did you in. So long, Oklahoma. You were a good ship. Um, and this girl, this student, uh, emails Mr. Rizell a picture of her at the memorial. And I believe it was I'm trying to think what I think it says what year. Um, let's see. It's sometime after 2007 because there was not even a memorial for the Oklahoma until 2007. But she emails a picture of herself standing at a plaque pointing to Randy Holmes. That's awesome. So wow. I thought that was really cool. And the the last words of this book basically sum up why this man does this and it's he says it's in the words of Susie Stevens Harvey who lost her brother in Vietnam and advocates for all those still missing in action or prisoners of war quote dying for freedom isn't the worst that could happen being forgotten is and they are incredible books I plan to reach out to the author um, yes please it, yeah, I mean it's unbelievable. And uh, apparently, when she, when my wife made the offer, they told Tammy that expect three more volumes. Nice, pretty soon. Hey, Dennis, it's incredible. What you That's reading? Awesome. Oh, I'm reading a lot. 
I'm reading a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm reading this one, first and the last. Um, I'm reading Goebbels' Diaries. Uh, what's really interesting is I had this idea the other day. I thought, well, I know that the, the mission, these bombing mission dates, so I thought just this idea came to me. I wonder what Mr. Goebbels had to say on those days. And uh, and the bomb group makes his diaries. <laughs> they, nice. They make the pages. It's pretty awesome. I'm glad I had that idea because it's definitely going in the book. Uh, have you guys ever read Bill Goebbels' diaries? Mm -mm. It, it's startling. I need, I need to open so up my honest. library more to the other side. I, I have a few German-based books, but not enough. Don, he is so honest. It's it's like, wait a minute, this is a different guy than who is portrayed in the propaganda. It, it's startling how honest he is and how he sees the writing on the wall like early. And you can't believe that they're fighting the Americans. And uh, it's it's really staggering. Um, I'm reading this book. Luftwaffe. About the FW 190. And uh, this one about the mighty eighth at war. Let me ask you guys this, since you, you read a lot of these Air Corps mag books. In any of these books, have you ever came across any sort of documentation of where the bombs were dropped as far as like latitude and longitude, something that you could actually take and go to Google maps and say, well, let's see where this area is nowadays. Is the, any of the books ever include anything of that nature? Or have you ever looked into seeing if, so if that information's across, out there? Cause that'd be kind of cool to go on Google maps and I'll say, well, let's see where this area, how developed it is nowadays. So there are, our, there's the uh, Institute of uh, combined arms Institute online they have a the actual english translation of the police president hans curl k-e-h-r-l who was the uh, our version would be the police chief of hamburg and it is a 400 something page wow. uh document and it talks about um eyewitness accounts of Hamburg, but to your point, they have Hamburg broken up into uh, sections, and they have a map, and they show uh, bomb hits and uh, areas that were destroyed. And so I imagine that you could overlay that on a map of current um, Hamburg, and you would be probably be able to get right in there and see. Uh, so the, I'm, but my point is, is that the, the Gauleiters and the uh, mayors of these other places probably had the same, even down to the small little towns that were mistakenly bombed, maybe perhaps. Uh, yeah, I would say it's out there. Before we wrap up the show, we want to get the mail call. We usually do a little earlier in the show, but uh, mail call, very important. We want to hear from you guys. You have questions, comments, suggestions, want to add something to the show, please email us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. That is WTSPWWII.com. And here's Jeff with the mail call. All right. Yeah, this first one reads, Greetings, Don, Jeff, and Henry. I have been a bad listener lately. Holiday season and family can drive a man to extremes. 
For example, not listening to his favorite World War II-based podcast. I was driving to work at 5 a.m. in the morning last week and catching up on episodes when what do my wandering ears did appear, but my name called out as a winner. Truly shocking. I never win anything. Holy Toledo, a major award. I gather you guys are getting the movie reference. Yes, I also have Ralphie's M1 Grand shirt as well. If time did not run out and you guys crumpled up my name on paper, I understand. There's always a chance for next time. I will keep this email short, Got just close. letting you guys know. Never miss listening to an episode, even if I'm a month behind. The three of you do an outstanding job and are much appreciated by this subscriber. I will start throwing an email your guys way more frequently. Both my grandfathers were World War II veterans. One was an army mechanic that served in the CBI theater, rebuilding Burma Road. My other grandfather was a submariner. What episode was that when Don learned submariner was one word? Just kidding, Don. <laughs> he was on the perch, SS-176. He was also a POW for three and a half years. There's a very interesting story attached to that. I will share if you guys are interested. I will sign off for now. Keep up the awesome work. Your podcast is, appreci is appreciated greatly. Sincerely, Joe Schwartz. Now, Joe, don't I get credit in knowing that a submariner is a man and a submariner is a watch? I should get some credit for that. <laughs> if you guys don't know what he won, he won the first Patreon giveaway, which was the print of Get Off the Beach, which we have shown. You guys seen the pictures on Instagram, but we want to announce that it's not too late. Coming up probably at the end of February because we're just now getting back in the steam of things. If you guys haven't done so, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the uh, link for Patreon or just go to Patreon.com and type in uh, 410, Digital 410 Media and you can find us. And it's upside down. Next one we're giving away is the second print from the Henry Sledge Collection. He got these when these prints were made. And this one is this guy right here. Another beautiful print. This one is entitled um, Off the Line. And you can see the guys come back all battle-hardened and war-weary from their battles. And all you have to do to get registered to enter, and if you're already a Patreon subscriber and you haven't won yet, so that means only one person has not entered to win, as long as you're an active subscriber and your account is up to date, you're entered to win. We're going to do a drawing probably at the end of February, maybe the beginning of March, and um, that'll be the next one we give away don't matter which tier you are a member of just sign up for any of the tier you can't be i'm not sure how but we have a few people that signed up for patreon free um, which you're not you're not registered so you have to be at least paying the dollar 50 a month there's three tiers there's a dollar 50 a month plan a 350 and a 750 we've been saying for years if you're a member of the 750 after two months you get a, a, a t-shirt kind of like the wonderful one dennis blocker's wearing but we decided why be limited to a t-shirt you can We'll reach out to you. You can get a hat if you want a hat. You want one of the awesome WTSP coffee mugs. You can't really see mine because of the light. I got the gray one. Jeff has the black one. Uh, you want a hat, T-shirt, coffee mug, anything in our store. If you're a $7.50 a month subscriber after month two, uh, we'll reach out to you. I got a couple shirts to send out this week. I sent a few of them out last month. Um, after month two, I'll reach out to you. The only key is, the only thing you have to be aware of is you need to check your email from time to time or just log into Patreon, download the app. Um, all our communication will be done through Patreon, which will send you an email. So if you're going to sign up, I know people have a tendency to sign up for things with their, their secondary or their spam email that they want all their spam to go to and they forget to sign, check it. 
If you're a winner, we're going to send you a message to Patreon, which will then go to your email. So you need to make sure you either check your email or go to Patreon every once in a while so that if you are a winner, um, we need to A, confirm that your address we have on file is correct, and B, that you're still active subscriber. So all you have to do is sign up and, and subscribe to any of those tiers, and you'll be entered in to win. And we're going to continue to do uh, more of these in the future. And Jeff, you have one more mail call, I believe? Yeah, and you know, there's another way to uh, to make sure if you know that you're a winner or not is to uh, you know listen to the show. <laughs> that's that's a novel you don't have idea. To check your email. <laughs> I mean, throwing that out there. Well, you okay. still have to check your email in order to to verify that you're still alive, and we can send it to you. But yes, listen to the show, find out if you're a winner, and then check your email. And still, you want okay, to check your email from time to time because I'll I'll send out messages occasionally saying, hey, you want some free stickers or. You know, we do giveaways all, all the time. So, All right. All right. The next uh, mail call here says, Don, Jeff, and Henry, I am Jack Talley. My wife and I are friends with Liberty Phillips through the 508 PIR reunions since 2018. We loved your podcast with her, highlighting the great work she does. Her comment for our book was, it's excellent. Now, Dennis is really going to like this part. Sue and I completed a book recently published in February of this year, highlighting the 1,000 war letters exchanged between Sue's paratrooper father and her mother during the war. Wow. A rarity, Sue's father mailed back home all of his old mail. Wow. So we have the home front side, too. The link to Never Give Up the Jump is here. Attached is a summary of the book. If you have any questions and would like to talk to us, Please let us know all the best, Jack and Sue Tally. That's amazing. Man. Um, I feel like uh, we need to be booking them uh, for this spring because that sounds like an interesting story. I haven't read the book review yet, but I definitely will. Um, a thousand war letters. My gosh, that's incredible. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. I have. Everyone letters sent me when I was over there. She has everyone I sent her. I doubt they add up to a thousand. Um, but I'll tell you what, especially I'm with you writing the in last block letters, of fighting men that still has letters that we kept because who keeps a text message, right? Before we wrap up the show, Jeff, anything coming down the line? Uh, Blue Bonnet Air Show in my neck of the woods. It's like six weeks away. 16 March 2024. If you're in Central Texas, come out and see me. Um, I, you know, I thought I was going to have an update for our um, our uh, Eureka Beacon uh, film that we're doing, but it looks like that may be pushed off till summer. Um, so just reading away and doing. I'm kind of at Dennis's uh, beck and call when anything that has to do with the B17. He gives me a shout and and pull the phone. So. Dennis, you got anything come down the line or anything you want to get out there? Yes, sir, I do. Um, I think we started off talking about the uh, Masters of the Air. And uh, I, I think it'd be kind of appropriate to end off with this diary entry from Dr. Joseph Goebbels, uh, Hitler's right-hand man, Please. Uh, number three in the Reich. He writes on May 25th, 1943, so the 94th bomb group has already been, has a couple missions under their belt by this time. He says, the critical thing about it 
is that industrial and munitions plants have been hit very hard. One can only repeat about air warfare. We are in an almost helpless inferiority and must grin and bear it as we take the blows from the English and the Americans. Pretty powerful stuff. And on those words, I want to thank each and every one of you for hanging out with us for another episode. And we will talk to you all next week. This week's What's the Scuttlebutt Patreon shout-out. We just want to give a heads-up and a shout-out to Nick Ledette, John Kraft, Joe Schwartz, and DJ Bowen. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show and what we do here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 